You're listening to Atlas of Chiropractic, the show where we uncover upper cervical chiropractic care for healthcare professionals, students, and potential patients. I'm Dr. John Stenberg, and with my co-host, Dr. Cameron Bearder, we are your guides to a behind-the-scenes look at the science and practice of upper cervical chiropractic. Welcome back to the Atlas of Chiropractic podcast. I'm uh, your host, Dr. John Stember. I'm really excited to have a conversation with Dr. Evan Katz today from Katz Chiropractic and Rehabilitation. He's my neighbor to the north. I'm here in Colorado Springs. He's up in Boulder. And uh, Dr. Katz has been uh, pumping out some research lately in a paper that uh, he recently published uh, called The Non-Surgical Management of Upper Cervical Instability via Improved Cervical Lower Doses is what prompted me to reach out to him in the first place. Yeah, I found this paper, read it, and said, yeah, let's, have a, let's have a conversation about this topic and concept because it's, it's extremely relevant to the patient populations that we see, uh, especially with the folks that have had the traumas they've had. Um, so, Dr. Katz, I appreciate your willingness to contribute. Give us a little bit of a background. Tell us you know, how you got into chiropractic, uh, how you found yourself in this interesting you know, world doing research and uh, you know, working in the uh, professionally integrated space. And then we'll get yeah. into some, of that, some uh, details. I'm, thanks for having me so much. Uh, sorry, I was just trying to get away from my dogs that are going a little crazy there. Um, so yeah, uh, been a chiro- practicing chiropractor in Boulder, Colorado for about 22 years. Um, I practice with my wife, Shauna, and uh, it's just her and I, we have some staff. And uh, in that time, we've been seeing... A lot of different patients, um, a lot of different pathologies, and we're really trying to put forth the aspect of science and chiropractic to not just to say, hey, this works, but to understand, well, why is this working? And if we do find something, what does it mean? Um, So, yeah. So we've seen patients of all walks of life, all different types of injuries, from athletes to a lot of car crashes to... All sorts of different stuff. Right on. And, and you guys, technique-wise, primarily practice CBP chiropractic, yes. correct? Yeah, cool. we do a lot of uh, chiropractic biophysics with restoring the normal both sagittal and coronal plane um, as a, what I say, as like a global subluxation. And then we'll also look at intersegmental subluxations or segmental subluxations as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how'd you get into CVP? I mean, as you're going through school, you know, we learn all these different techniques and we all kind of meander our way into whatever resonates, but how'd you get on that path? Yeah. So, um, when I was in school, uh, you know, it all made sense to me. I used to go to a chiropractor, my, uh, uncle been a chiropractor for, I think like 50 or 60 years now. Um, Dr. Jerry Whitner in Newburgh, New York, and he's still practicing. He's like 80 something years old. And, um, and, uh, when I was in school, you know, I started learning about, obviously, as we all do about adjustments and it all made sense with the exception of one thing. And that was not to call on a technique or bash a technique because is they were like, okay, here's your, here's what you are. You could take this listing or finding to someone else that does this. And this is what you are. And I was like, I was like, so then we don't, it doesn't change. And I would ask that in school all the time. I was like, well, why am I always this? Like we, I thought chiropractic reduced subluxations. If I continually get adjusted, why am I always this sublux, this subluxation? But I like, can't we change it? So my buddy, um, who was in school with Dr. Philip Aragon, I remember we went to, he got, he was starting to get into CBP and he's like, Hey, just come to this, uh, you know, they were called clubs at the time, you know, yeah. I graduated in 2000. I come to this CBP club. So I went and uh, I remember there was a guest doc and he was talking about this professional cheerleader and she was having problems, having problems with her back or something. And he said to me, you know, I, you remember certain things. He's like, hey, she had a uh, she came in, in her outfit once and her outfit had her belly button showing and her belly button was super far over from her epistermal notch. And then he showed her x-rays and showed how it was off. And then he corrected it and then showed the post. And I was like, that's the missing link. It can be corrected. I was like, holy smokes. Like 
So you can take those, like I, I sometimes will do seated adjustments and osseous adjustments. I like that. And I was like, you could take that segmental approach and you can combine it with this global approach. And I was like, that makes all the sense in the world. And, and I think also as a chiropractor, you know, at this point, I'm not, you know, I've had people argue with me a few times like, oh, a cervical kyphosis, let's just say, is maybe normal for that person. And the science just doesn't support that. And I just can't get behind that anymore because that's just not true. In fact, most of the research and, you know, that I have on my site, as it relates to the curve, surgeons are trying to prevent it because we know it leads to worse problems. And that's, I feel like that should be our, um, you know, that should be, we should own that. It's the spine. It's both segmental and global um, subluxations. So yeah. I implemented it in. You know what? It's it's funny because, you know, it's just the upper cervical world that I come was, was a similar thing. It was like, these were the people that are talking about adjustments holding, you know, and the idea that like you would do <clears throat> your chiropractic intervention and there would be some sustainable value to it. And that, that appealed to me. The mm -hmm. other thing that I heard a lot was that there are global changes from, you know, upper cervical adjusting. Same thing. It's like a segmental approach that has a, you know, a global either neurological or structural impact. And I think that's true for some people. And a lot of times we, we understand those mechanisms and we, you know, we do see some lower spinal change. But we were talking offline just before this. I think for, for a lot of people, and I'll just say for my, a lot of my peers that are about my age, it's like when we came into upper cervical, we were hearing that this is supposed to happen, right? Curves are restored, you know, scoliosis is reduced. We get all these global structural changes because we've, you know, made a correction of the atlas and we were fired up about that, you know, and then you get a few years into practice and you're, you're seeing these cases and you're going like, Oh, you know, when is that going to happen? You know, and, and am I going to see that consistently? Am I going to be able to do right. it on purpose? Am I going to be able to predict the level of correction that I can, you know, expect from upper cervical adjusting? If I don't see that, do I know what to do next, you know, to facilitate further change? And, and that's where I felt like, man, I'm really kind of like, either I'm doing something wrong or there's more to the story. And, and it, it could be, very, you know, combination of both, but what really messed me up, and this is not to name any names or, or slight anybody, but, you know, as a, as a Blair doctor, I've had a lot of folks that have come through town or, you know, moved and transferred care from other Blair doctors, some of which that have been practicing for 20, 25, 30 years and beyond. And these are patients that have felt good, that have held well, you know, that neurologically respond favorably to upper cervical adjusting. And then I'd look at their images and, and their spine doesn't look any healthier than the people that didn't have chiropractic. And that messed me up. And, I, and I'm just saying that that was my experience. Other folks can, you know, think about what they will with that. But I started thinking like, oh my God, I've been telling these people that like, if you just keep your atlas in alignment, your spine is healthier globally and that you're going to see better long-term health outcomes than the average person. And I'm, I'm looking at, like you said, the evidence in front of me is suggesting something other than what I have believed with, with no evidence to support it. And so, you know, when those things happen, it makes you think, you know, and, and I'm the kind of guy that's like, oh man, you know, like I've got to, I've got to sort this out because I feel accountable to these people that come to me for help. Uh, so yeah. when I saw your, when I saw your paper, you know, cause the other thing that's really unfortunate is that term upper cervical instability is getting thrown around a lot. And I think used inappropriately sometimes yeah. and, and the ideas about what do you do with that? How do you correct it? How do you manage patients with upper cervical instability, whether it's post-traumatic or connective tissue disorder, or God forbid both, you know, um, you know, what, what are the things that you need to be looking out for as a doctor, regardless of technique, as a doctor that's caring for these people, what are, what are your inputs? Or like, what are the things that you can do to help these people have the best quality of life and mm -hmm. get the best possible correction? And so when I saw your paper and, and you know, connecting the, the cervical lordosis to uh, upper cervical instability, I thought this is something, you know, that's a really interesting uh, topic to, to dive into. So yeah. um, any, any comments on upper cervical instability before we get into the content of the paper, how you got involved with working <laughs> with this population? Yeah. So I, my wife and I, um, we've had a digital motion x-ray for over like 20 years, probably more than most people. We, I'm pretty confident we've probably have done and analyzed more digital motion x-rays than most people on the planet because of how many we, we've done over the years. And then we, when we've, 
you know, we published a paper on uh, true spinal mechanics, uh, looking at 37 parameters on each person. So in the 20 something years that we were doing this, we kept seeing this upper cervical instability or what we thought was upper cervical instability, right? And that was, there's multiple ways, but most, you know, you could look at the clival axial angle and that suggests instability, but it's still static motion. So you don't know if it's unstable, right? It's really what the clival axial angle is. It's a sign of occult instability, right? It could be hidden instability. So we were like, okay, we see this lateral overhang. We see a change in what's called the peridental space. Um, We see the ADI. And then we see some other factors that we're looking at now too, that people aren't really discussing. And we're like, wow, that appears to be unstable. And then, and then the million dollar question is, well, what do you do? Right. Okay. So what do you do about this? Because there isn't a lot of literature. The literature, in fact, for lateral translation that we were able to find, they showed about 2.2 millimeters was unstable. And our paper showed that that's actually not correct. And that number, I believe they only checked it on patients. I think they had um, uh, RA or Down syndrome where they could have upper cervical instability. But we're like, well, they, they never compared that to the normal and to the normal population. So in the 20 years that we've been doing that, we were like, and I've testified probably more than most chiropractors by a landslide. Um, and the real question was, okay, you're, di- you're diagnosing this, but how do you really know? And that was like what you and I were talking about. Like, okay, you could say that if you adjust C1, their scoliosis will get better. It'd be like, do you have any evidence of that? Right? So it's like, well, what real evidence do we have? And, and then what do you do about it? So we had these two these two things. So my wife and I, um, Dr. Centeno, who invented the pickle procedure, um, I've been working with him for over 20 years. And that was our question. Like, well, what do we do? Right. So um, we started to look at it and we first started to look at, um, is it stable or unstable compared to the asymptomatic population? And then what are we doing to help these people? Why are some getting much worse? Why are some not getting better? And why are some getting better and much better? So we started to really look at that. And, you know, I, I'm a proponent in upper cervical chiropractic. I think it, it it's incredibly powerful, right? Getting adjusted. But I was also, you know, at the point where I'm like, okay, if C1 is unstable, should I be adjusting it? Should I be putting a, a force into it? Um, and that is a big question, right? So we started seeing... It, great outcomes in the term, uh, in the sense of getting patients relief when they were never able to get relief. Um, and then we started doing post DMXs and we started to see that their upper cervical spine was becoming more stable or less unstable. So we decided, I mean, the patient sample we have is a lot more than what we put down there, but we're like, there's nothing out here. So in the terms of going to court, it was like, and the real question is this, okay, if someone, you know, for the students that are listening to this, if you diagnose upper cervical instability, should you be adjusting an unstable segment? And I know the answer to that for me, but if you think that's a, a hard question to answer, wait until you see how hard it is when an attorney asks you that. Mm. So you better know. And you better have evidence to show that chiropractic care can help because I've been a core bunch like, okay, if someone's unstable, let's just say it's C5. Should you adjust an unstable segment? Now, what if it gets to upper cervical instability? That's a whole other animal as we know the, you know, the, that incredible area of our spine. If it's damaged and unstable, do you have evidence that you can help it? And there isn't any. Or at least there wasn't any, which is, which brings up a whole other thing with our profession, right? Like, why isn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate that you have to be the one to produce the research that you can then use in your deposition, you know, but when you see a need and you have the means to meet the need, I respect you, for, you guys for taking the time and, and investing the energy to, to put that out there. And, and hopefully that starts the process of, building the body of literature, because I know, you know, a lot of folks, they just want to help, right? These folks come to you and they're suffering. Let's say it's a patient that's been 
under care with you and they get in a terrible car accident, right? And they've yep. got ligaments that are tore up and, and what's worked for them historically might not be the best tool or the best option at this point. You want to be there for them. You want to offer another solution. I think it's good to know what your options are and, and to understand the problem. You know, right. not to say that because sure. people don't hold their adjustments for six months doesn't mean that they have upper cervical instability. That is a diagnosable radiographic finding. And there are, you know, there are lines of mensuration and test procedures that, you know, that do definitively diagnose that. Well, I think and, the other uh, thing is, oh, speaking of the paper, the, the paper that he's referencing for the diagnostic accuracy of VF, um, that was a paper Dr. Scott Rosa was a co-author on. So if you think yep. that this, you know, flies in the face of upper cervical purists, definitely not the case, right? Dr. Oh, man, Rosa I've was, I've known was Dr. my wife and that. I've known Dr. Scott Rosa for man, 20 something years, you know, and I, I talk to him often. I, in fact, you know, I sent my cousin to him for, for treatment and he's like, he's, you know, he's helped my cousin a ton, you know? So now that doesn't mean Scott Rosa and I always agree on everything all the time, but I respect the heck out of Scott Rosa and I know he respects me and we've worked on great projects together. And, um, you know, and, th- and again, this is, this is a, the thing that we've all agreed upon, which is out there now based on the evidence and the research is that call it what you will, upper cervical instability or a significant upper cervical subluxation is real. And the crazy thing is, is, you know, we could sit here and we could say, okay. And again, I'll ask you this because you're an upper cervical doc, not to put you on the spot, but I, we now know what is normal movement through multiple planes of C1 to be considered normal or abnormal based on the normal population. And I've asked Scott this, like, okay, if you're doing your analysis static and there's a small rotation to say that it's out, has that been analyzed? Like, like how do you know what is that range within the normal population? And that's something that, you know, we talk about like, okay, if it's slightly rotated, like where, what's the, how much change? Like we now know, with upper cervical, we thought two millimeters was unstable. And we found that that's not true. It's more than that. Yeah. Um, and so now we, you know, if I go back 20 years when I testified, I'm like, oh, that person has 2.5 millimeters of lateral overhang. It's unstable. If I was treating that person now, based on what we know, I'd be like, actually, it's pretty good. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you're in a range. So that's what we've always looked at. And what we want to know is what is that real range? Like, when do we tell a patient that, Hey, within this population base of healthy people to unhealthy, here's what that range of atlas could be. Um, do you know what is there? Is there that in our technique? No, I mean there there's not been uh, there's not been effort or research you know done to to kind of quantify that. And, and I've had conversations with docs about this because you know with Blair technique we look at you know basically oblique nasiums, look at the atlanto-occipital articulations in the profile. And you look for an overhang or an underhang, kind of like what you're talking about with C1 and C2. And so, you know, I've asked docs, like, how, how much matters? Is it percentage of the joint, you know, right. disarticulated? Is it a, a certain, you know, measurement for, you know, and, and nobody can answer that question for me. So I have asked those questions and it's like, and this is what I hear a lot too. Sometimes the smallest misalignments are the most dangerous. And it's like, but why? You know, like based on what? And And maybe that's true, but again, it's kind of like, we, we really, we hang our hat on certain assumptions that just really had never been tested, you know, scientifically. And, well, and maybe we don't know the, the, the proper way to do that. But to answer your question, you know, the, the short answer is no. Well, and, and that's the thing is that if you, you know, and this is, this is what we got into, you know, because um, Michael Freeman was on that paper. And Michael Freeman, you know, one of the smartest guys, you know, I mean, he's a, chiropractor, a master in public health. He's an MD, PhD, a forensic epidemiologist. And when we were doing this paper, um, he was like, all right. I was like, well, you know, we have this machine here. It's expensive. We invested in it. Um, he's like, well, don't you, you know, I was like, well, what if, you know, what if it, what if it's not abnormal? And he looked at me dead in the face. He's like, well, don't you want to know that? Yeah. And the question is, is like, I'll ask that same question to you. Like, if you're going to say to someone like, hey, this is malaligned, shouldn't our profession have the information to be able to show them what is aligned? Because if you yeah. don't know that that's truly in a malalignment in the 
human species. And we can't say that, you know, it's like what you say, if you can't, if you can't rule it out, you got to rule it in. Yeah. Like, how do you know? And that's yeah. something I think we should look at. And that's what we looked at with upper cervicals. Now we all can say because yeah. of that, you know, DMX paper, we can all say what is normal, not just in the upper cervical spine, but down to C7 on multiple parameters. And now we can say, this is a subluxation, right? I don't even say that it's, a, you know, a instability because we also looked at mid, mid-phase movement. So we can say these are subluxations and we can see the percentage of likelihood uh, that this finding is in a sick population compared to an unsick population. And that's super powerful because now we could like this person does need our care because when they're in this range, this is more likely to be seen in the injured or non-healthy population. And now we should be able to address that. Yeah. You know, and the other, the other, you know, finding being the, the loss of the cervical lordosis, it's like, okay, you know, like you said, understanding, understanding biomechanics, we know that if the neck bends forward, the upper cervical spine hyperextends, right? right. That's, that's what happens, right? right. So we see these and, and the upper cervical rationale would say, well, the head's forward because the atlas misaligned the anterior. It's like, again, okay, you know, so you can you can test that assumption. You can treat that per- person, have them, you know, improve symptomatically. You can do post testing and see if those things improve. And I, and that's what prompted the conversation is I think a lot of us see symptomatically patients do well, objectively, according to a chiropractic technique, they do really well, but we might get that post imaging and go, well, it doesn't look that different. Well, you know, like it doesn't look dramatically different. And so then people will say, well, what matters is they feel better. Well, and, and that is true. But the next level is, Let's get it all. You know, we want it all. We want the the symptom improvement, the the maximum structural restoration of the spine, you know, and we want empowered patients who understand what's actually going on. Well, for sure. But, you know, my argument is, you know, and I've had this with multiple people and how we run our practice is. So as chiropractors, are we only evaluating um how someone feels to consider that, Hey, they're in or they're out because we're here in Colorado. And as you know, you could feel pretty good with some weed. Um, that's the opioid epidemic. Got a lot of people feeling good for a while. Um, because someone's neck feels better. Does that mean that they're not more likely to break down in the future and get degenerative changes, myelopathy? Um, the research is too strong to just say they feel better. So now as I look at it as, okay, I want you to feel better. Feeling better is by far the first, the thing that we want. But are you going to stay feeling good? And is there any evidence that suggests that if you have, let's say, a loss of the cervical curve, that you won't get worse? And most of the research, and again, not, you know, I'll plug it on professionallyintegrated.com. If you just under loss of curve, you can look at chronic neurovascular, um, joint, there's tons of studies that show that it, not only if you, not only will it break down, but over time it can cause more myelopathy and change in microvasculature. So because you feel good right now, like look, cortisone shots feel great. Numbs you up. They're not better, right? That joint is still a ticking time bomb. So I, we look at it this way, like, okay, we got you feeling better but we want you to stay better. I mean, look, heavy people with heart disease can feel pretty good, but are they more more likely to have health problems? And that's the same with these subluxations as you could have these subluxations and be asymptomatic right now. And that's typically what they are. And then you take an X-ray of someone's neck and you're like, whoa, it's a mess. It didn't happen overnight. That was asymptomatic, major subluxations and the loss of the cervical curve, um, really does that. And, and in terms of your upper cervical comment, you know, I just put a paper up on the site and it's from European Spine Journal and it's titled Impact of Cervical Sagittal Balance and Cervical Spine Alignment on the Cranio-Cervical Junction. And what they found is that having, um, show that cervical sagittal imbalance, either straight and or kyphosis groups, have a higher value of almost occipital cervical parameters in the cervical lordosis group. So what they're finding again, and that's a little bit of our, what our paper was on was that this straight or buckled neck 
is what's changing that upper cervical um, area. And then that's kind of what we showed in our paper from a treatment perspective was, and, and, and the unfortunate thing, you know, as I, as I talk about this all the time is we're fighting about this in our profession, whether it's yeah. a, whether it's a, a technique turf war and in, in, in doing so with the loss of curve and upper cervical instability, and we're not owning it, the surgeons are. And the surgeons are publishing this being like, hey, if we fuse them this way, uh-huh. it's going to be worse. So let's put more hardware in. Hey, this person has a loss of the cervical curve. We know that this can lead to worse outcomes. So we might as well just fuse them in a lordosis because we're, we're all, our own profession is fighting over it and the neurosurgeons aren't. So I'm over here like, getting referrals from neurosurgeons because we want to get their necks better. And I'm on more line with these neurosurgeons with sagittal alignment and upper cervical than 98% of the chiropractors. It's weird. Yeah, it, it is weird. And I think I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, I've been having conversations like this more frequently lately, and I'm, I'm not really trying to, you know, stir the pot in the upper cervical community at all, but this is the way my brain works. And, and when I think about these people, if they have upper cervical instability, They've been in an accident. They have a loss of the lordosis. I want to help them the best way I can. Doesn't mean that upper cervical is not a viable option, but maybe there's a sequencing to it, right? If what what if I were to restore the curve so that their upper cervical spine is stable, so that my upper cervical adjustment is most effective? I mean, I think that's a totally reasonable thought process. And and what I'm realizing is folks are very emotionally attached right. to their chiropractic beliefs. And, and I, I say beliefs very specifically because you know, we're talking offline. There, there's really not a mountain of evidence to support a lot of the crazy things we say. Like I started this you know, whole thread on an upper cervical page recently about, hey, does anybody know of a proposed neurophysiological mechanism for retracing? And, right. and it started this, this whole conversation. It's like not one person brought anything remotely it's close terrible. to a scientific reference. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just asking, you know, like everybody's been taught that. What What is the rationale? Like, what is our understanding of the science? And what is the evidence of this phenomenon and, and how it actually works with known physiological mechanisms? And that, that makes people very upset. And I don't understand that because, you know, I, I like you said, it's like, I want to know. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, and again, as we said off air, I've been very fortunate to be around very smart people like my wife. Dr. Centeno, Dr. Harrison, Dr. Freeman, and they don't get me, they don't let me or we don't let each other get off the hook by just saying their neck is abnormal, right? And when we did this upper cervical paper, like how hard it is to publish good papers, it's freaking hard, right? And a lot is like, you can't just say, you know, I I got into this with another chiropractor who he tried to publish something and it was like, we did this test that shows abnormal. And you're like, well, where's the reference to show that this test has ever been? Well, it's just what we do. I'm like, you, you, can't, you can't do that. Like every sentence has to have some form of validity. So if I said to Michael Freeman, like, oh, this person has um, inst- too much movement of C5. He could be like, well, what did it measure? I, you just don't tell me it's too much by how much or, Hey, they got better. Well, met, what does better mean? Oh, they just felt better. Like, well, if they did Tylenol, could they have felt better? So are you saying Tylenol is as effective as your adjustment? Like, absolutely not. So let's show that because all of the evidence that I use in my practice that I have on this site, it's all there to show what the physiological aspects are for subluxations. And if you reduce it, what happens? And that, you know, and that's what we found. And look, upper cervical, you know, upper cervical, I think is really, is really great. There's tons of great stuff that happens in the upper cervical spine, but this paper wasn't to say you don't need upper cervical care. It is upper cervical care, right? It's it's looking at it as a, as a, um, as a unit to say, well, if we do this, this could reduce the subluxations up here, but maybe there's still subluxations left there where you're still going to do your upper cervical adjustments to get even better outcomes. And that's what we yeah. hope to see. Yeah. So not, not only that, but I know, you know, another thing that, that people get very emotionally invested in conversations about is if you should do other things besides upper cervical adjusting, right? Lower spine adjusting, any type of, you know, treatment or therapy, any type of anything else besides upper cervical adjusting, people have very strong opinions about 
whether they think that's right or wrong for an upper cervical chiropractor to do. And my thing has always been, but if you're only using upper cervical adjusting for everything, that's less appropriate. You know, that's not honoring upper cervical adjustments in my mind. It's like if someone needs extension traction and you just continue to hammer on their atlas over and over and over, just trying to force your thing to be the right answer. How is that? How is that benefiting upper cervical chiropractic? You know, and, and how is that honoring the patient's ability to to experience the benefits of upper cervical? And so again, it's it's one of those things that like, if if you've made your mind up, you're probably not listening to this in the first place. Uh, in the conversation is is it's just different. But for those of us that that have these questions and, and we're face to face with these people who are suffering, because here's the deal: like, I started practice right after school, and you know I'm three months in practice, and I got people with seizures, and I got people with Chiari malformations, and all kinds of crazy shit that's coming in. Yep. And and they're looking at me like you're the guy that's going to help, right? And all I know is what I've been told, right? And then you start to treat these people and do the things you were taught, and you you just observe what happens. Right. And I do think. You know, I don't want to I don't want to detract from the the concept that you have to take the time to develop your skills as a chiropractor. But a lot of times, you know, these conversations go to, well, your technique's not good enough. You haven't been doing it long enough. You don't right. adjust the way I do. You don't you miss something on your upper cervical analysis. And, and here's the deal, like especially with Blair, it's pretty black and white, like the overlap, the underlap. It's there. It's not like I, I think that's kind of a I think it's a way to explain away everything else, you know, and, and, and just focus in on the thing you like, which is cool. But I got to be honest, like if it takes you 25 years of just practicing four Atlas adjustments to be good at this, I don't know if I want to do it. You know, it's like, that's, right. that's kind of a, that's setting yourself up for a long struggle of a career, you know, and, and I, I appreciate the wisdom of years, but I do think like in today's day and age, like there's no harm with saying the other thing, which is like, how do we get to the outcome quicker? I was having a conversation with a really thoughtful chiropractor recently and we're talking about technique and he's like, you know, all the technique people, they talk about specificity in terms of the technique things that you do, but what about specificity of an outcome? You know, what about saying like, I don't care how we get to the improved cervical lordosis. That's the, that's the end goal. Um, right. And the specificity is in the outcome for the patient. Uh, and whatever we have to do to achieve that end is is a different conversation. I thought that was a very that was a very interesting way to to characterize specificity. Well, I mean, so look at this, right? <clears throat> and again, not to be confrontational at all, or but you in your analysis, you have okay, this is what it should look like. But where where are you where do you practice here in Colorado Springs? You said hmm. okay, so you know, so we have a DMX that we now know what is a true C1 subluxation. If you send patients to us and we DMX them and you saw this instability, how is that going to, would that change your treatment? Yeah. Like I, and, and, I, I'm not here to answer that for you. The question is what is, so it, that's well, more information that you can give to the patient that it might, right? So you were taught, here's, here's what it should be. And we talked about that before, like, well, how do you know? But now if you combine that with what we see, what would that do? And and that is what we've seen in our office. Like it changes, it should change, right? Like yes. it's, it's more information. It should change yeah. what you do. It should change what you think. But it's yeah. never changed the fact that these patients don't need chiropractic. 100%. You know, and, and I think and that's what happens is a lot of people think, well, if I, you know, I mean, look, it's, it's, a, it's sad. We've had this, we've had this DMX in Colorado over 20 years. We've published more papers on it than pretty much what I'd say than anyone. We know what normals are. We get way more medical referrals than chiropractic referrals. Why is that? Mm. Like, like why is that? It's because they're wow. afraid to refer out. I think some are afraid of what it's going to show and afraid. And then there's, I think some are afraid of what questions they're going to be asked by the patient when they come back. But I find that is exciting because most 99% of the time, we have some kind of solution that needs to be in their um, in their healthcare model. But if you don't know, if like if you're if you're adjusting and they're constantly hurt or they, they constantly have symptoms and you don't know that they're unstable, then how can you treat it? How can you even educate them on that's what it is? So yeah. it, here's this new information. 
um, with the DMX paper that really shows, in my opinion, you know, true subluxations of the spine compared to normal. And most chiropractors don't even know this paper exists. It's really the largest subluxation paper that's been done comparing injured versus non injured. So we can, I can tell you how much movement there should be or how little movement there should be and what can be done. But and, nope. and that's that's such an interesting concept because all of our subluxation analysis and upper cervical is on static imaging, and we know, right. well, well, this is what we say: the subluxated spine doesn't operate with the rules of normal biomechanics. It's like okay, so then check the biomechanics. Yeah, you got to see what's happening when it's moving, right? And I mean, uh, some folks are dabbling with some interesting studies with that. But but Dr. Katz, I've literally. This may or may not surprise you, but like I've literally had conversations like this with docs, and and this is not just exclusive to to Blair people. So right. like I'm not I'm not calling anybody out, but I've had people when we have these conversations say, "Well, that's not going to change. That's not going to way I tr- change the way I treat the patient." It should exactly, and and so when we when we get into these these conversations about like, well, what about this? What about that? They go, "Well, it's not going to change what I'm doing." Yeah, so so why do I need to why, why do I need to look at that and consider that? And I'm like, why wouldn't it? I'll, I'll send those over some images that they'd be glad that they didn't get that patient to walk in first because they would have, the outcomes could have been much worse. And, yeah, you know, and I hear that all the time too. Like, oh, well, how's that going to change? I'm like, well, let me show you. Like this wouldn't affect your analysis at all or your, or even your, or even your patient communication. Let's say yeah. it's not even going to change what you do. Is it going to change what your patient knows about their health? And if you say no, well, then you're just being a lazy doc. Like, yeah. fine, you can keep doing the same analysis, but this patient should understand why when they're on a car in a bumpy road, their neck goes out. Well, because you're unstable. And those ligaments don't heal as well. There's more um, fibrosis. There's more, you know, change in mechanoreception and proprioceptors. That's what's going on here. That, that yeah. you're not going to change. That knowledge isn't going to change how you communicate or what you do to your patient. Then you're just a bad doc. And, and I do, I do believe in the law of supply and demand. And, and ever since I got interested in upper cervical, I've, I've been hearing people, you know, say this, like, just wait until the medical community can find out what we do. You know, like, there's not going to be enough upper cervical chiropractors. My thing is like, would they be impressed? You know, like if, if let's say one of these neurosurgeons comes to a Blair conference and, and they, they watch the content of our conversations and they see what we do and they, would they be impressed? Would that build confidence? No. I think the way we, I think the way we want to feel about it because we're passionate is that it would, because they, they would know what we know, but they wouldn't know what we know. They right. would make up their own mind about what they observe, but right. that's their right. And, and I think that the reason why we haven't broken is because we haven't done the work to prepare ourselves to rise to that occasion. Well, I mean, that's just, that's just the way I see it. And, and, and I'd like to be a part of that solution. But, well, um, you know, it's, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry, go ahead. No, and, I, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to turn this into like a, here's all the stuff that is wrong with upper cervical, because that's, that's not the goal. No, I'm not saying and, it's and, well, I think it's no, in general. 100%. And the way I feel about it, and this is how I've started referring to it lately, is like upper cervical is my sandbox that I play in, right? This is, this is where I'm at right now. I, I feel like it's my obligation to scoop the turds out of my own sandbox. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like at some point we have to address, you know, some of our, you know, some of our shortcomings or just continue to evolve, to honor the legacy of the folks that put us in a position to be where we're at and continue with it. Well, so, so it's, it's not a thing about like this chiropractic versus that chiropractic. I want every upper cervical chiropractor to be able to answer every question that you would throw at them about this and to be able to answer it confidently and with a level of evidence that is, you know, would stand up to anybody, not just their technique mentor, not just another chiropractor but to the neurosurgeon, to the patient who's a plumber, I, I feel strongly that we should and can, you know, rise to that level. And, and that's not just an opportunity. It's our responsibility. Well, you know, again, not to plug it, but that's how I feel. And that's why I started professionally integrate. It's all on yep. there. But yep. this is the, the crazy thing. Um, <clears throat> we have our own profession that's fighting full spine, upper cervical, what, call it what you will not getting that traction like you were saying. Dr. Centeno comes in and I've heard, you know, someone mention him on, you know, your podcast recently. And it, him and me, we have patients, we 
we did DMXs this week. Someone flew in from Norway, someone from Latvia, and someone drove eight hours. And we have chiropractors that argue like, oh, there isn't one in my area. Like we just had someone from Latvia come in. And these patients are, are being, being educated of an upper cervical subluxation that causes, that wreaks havoc on the nervous system. And what are they doing? They're spending X amount to get a procedure from Dr. Centeno and we can't even educate them. He's only been doing this for a fraction of the time chiropractic has been around. Right. That's our, that's our fault. Now I'm, you know, I love Dr. Centeno. He's one of the most brilliant men I know. And I've worked with him a lot. I've published papers with him and I refer to his office. If anyone needs more than what I have to offer in conjunction with me, I've never lost a patient. He has great stuff, but his goal is to try to reduce a subluxation. And he has people flying all over the world. And we can't, and we have chiropractors putting out ads for $19 for a month. Yeah. Why, why is that? And he's, he's, he's affiliated with my site. He's on professionally integrated. I have webinars on there with him and, and much of his staff. That's the yep. problem, right? It's, we're too busy fighting with ourselves and we're too busy not pushing the envelope. Like he's put yeah. out more upper cervical information in three years than I think all of chiropractic has in the last hundred. Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because people, you know, I can already hear the comments from some folks that would say like, what are you guys trying to like, you know, impress the medical doctors? You're selling out on chiropractic. Like you're so, oh. you're, you, you want to be so, you know, well-respected by the medical community. And, and I think if you're thinking that, then you're not hearing Dr. Katz's heart on this, which is that it's about the patients, right? Well, and it's about the outcomes related to their lives. Look, these, the things that we see, the things that you see, the things that every chiropractor or chiropractic student that's listening to, these subluxations are real. They're, they're objectifiable and they're also correlated to many subjective problems from pain to neurological to vascular issues. When they see a surgeon or they see someone like Centeno, they're explaining what their subluxation is. And they're like, well, we're going to see if we do this, if we can help the subluxation. I know that I can fix that most of the time, bloodlessly, and for less of a cost. So I'm not trying to get, in fact, most medical doctors, you know, hate what we have to say to some degree because they just want to give them some you know, prednisone or, and I, we don't want that. We're trying to improve the health of their life. I don't want that, those medical doctors to embrace me because they're not, I, I don't want to refer to them. I'm like, I don't want you to give them a, you know, a steroid yeah. or something, but right. they understand that sagittal alignment matters. They understand that upper cervical instability matters. And we published a paper to show that. So that, that argument when someone says, well, how do you know it's unstable? It's like, well, we can show you. How do yeah. you know that this subluxation causes this? So here's a bunch of evidence to suggest that. Now let's well, let's, uh, let's talk about how you go about fixing it because I know mm -hmm. you know not everyone is familiar with you and your practice model. And then I want to talk about professionally integrated in a little bit more detail. Mm -hmm. uh, but so so for these folks, you know, we've kind of beat the dead horse on some of the you know shortcomings. What are you actually doing? I mean, in the paper, you yep. describe how you rehabilitate this curve. So walk through folks through your treatment process. Yeah. So. As we talk about, and you and I need to go get like a beer or something. We're not, we'll meet halfway because I'm sure, you know, I'm going to try to keep this brief. Whenever you do a paper study, there's so much that you have to discuss, but there's also so much that you can't. It's impossible. And I'm actually presenting at the CVP annual in like two weeks, I think, on this um, topic because there's a lot of people that are doing CVP based on this paper and they're not doing it correctly. Right. Because oh. it is a very, look, first of all, what I want everyone to understand is that patients with these upper cervical issues, so many of them are disabled. Their, their lives are ruined. Their yeah. lives are so much harder because of this. Right. So a few of the things that we couldn't put in the papers, there are a lot of um, biomechanical changes both in the mid cervical and upper cervical spine that is going to affect how we adjust them and put them on traction. 
So our hypothesis in the beginning of this was, and what we saw was, hey, when this person has a cervical kyphosis, their mid upper neck goes into flexion, but in order for them to keep horizontal gaze, they're hyperextending their skull base, right? So what, what's at the skull base, right? You have the posterior elanol axial membrane, the posterior elanol axial ligament, you have the mildural bridge, right? What does that affect? Well, it affects pretty significant structures. So if you're stuck in a hyperextended position, one area, just like if you're doing traction, is going to be compressed and the other area is going to be elongated. So if they're having this compression in the anterior column of the cervical spine, you're getting the elongation. Well, what happens with uh, loss of cervical curve? There's been a ton of studies. In fact, Alf Brieg, you know, mentioned that when you have a kyphosis, it pulls the spinal cord forward and it abuts in the posterior aspects of the vertebral body. And that can lead to um, neurovascular changes. I think that was published in Journal of Neurosurgery. So now if you have this hyperextension of the skull base, what are you doing to the upper cervical ligaments, right? Well, what happens to the apical ligaments? Uh -huh. um, they're, they're, you're, you're loading them, right? So think about if someone has a torn ACL, you're not going to traction their tibia anterior and have it, and have it heal that way, yeah. right? So it's going to constantly be lax. So we started seeing these patients get better where once we're like, okay, and then we did DMXs on them and we saw that they had upper like true upper cervical instability based on what we know true upper cervical instability is based on our paper. Um, we didn't look at the ADI space in this one. We just looked at lateral translation, but we also have um, even better examples, believe it or not, of ADIs because um, it makes sense. When they're in extension, what happens? If they, and we see that on the DMXs all day long. Um, oh which is another positive implication for chiropractic for upper cervical instability. If you're adjusting them in the right plane and extension, you're minimizing that. So, um, so what we did is we looked at the mechanics of their mid cervical spine as it relates to their upper cervical spine and really vice versa. So what we did is we didn't adjust C1, right? We weren't looking at the rotation or C1 um, rotation. We were looking at the laterality as they started to move as well as the, um, skull extension. And that skull extension really comes into play, which I'm teaching at the CVP, because if someone has a lot of skull extension and you put them on traction with skull extension, you're just, you're irritating them even more. But one of the things that I'll show this example at the seminar is we see a lot of people on DMXs where when they go into extension, they're mid to lower cervical spine and this is something Dr. Centeno, I'm probably going to give it away and someone else is going to take this. Um, Centeno and I are working on this is we see a lot of people when they extend all the extension in like 90% of the mid phase, which you'll miss on a static is that skull base and the rest of the spine is hypomobile. So um, if you just put them on extension thinking like, oh, you're really, you're, there's upper cervical instability at that region, but it's hypomobility um, down below. So what we did with these patients is we worked on their mid-cervical spine. Um, a lot of them I did do osseous adjusting. We randomly chose these people. We were like, all right, you know, and again, we have hundreds of these, but we took these patients um, and we adjusted them. Sometimes we use arthrostim and instrument adjustments under the CBP protocol of restoring the curve, but we really changed how we did the traction. And that that's a whole, uh, for a whole different subject um, of you know, um, yeah, yeah. we can't get into all the details and, and, of the, those procedures. What, what we found just like that paper I read to you before on the occipital angle was when we improved the cervical curve, they felt better. Right. But I was like, okay, great. They felt, they feel better, but they got their qual quality of life back and multiple factors. But the real thing was like, okay, well, what's happening to the structure and did we affect the upper cervical spine by not even touching it? By just looking at the buckle of the neck. And what we found was when we looked at, and we hired, um, initially we hired a PhD from CU, but then we got um, a forensic uh, firm to do it. And, you know, I think this is the problem with chiropractic, like the amount of money that we spent on the DMX paper, this, the, our, our blood flow paper, like I'm not, like I want people to join professionally integrated, but we don't have pharmaceutical companies giving us this money. We don't have chiropractic companies giving us money. I don't have anyone giving me this money. Big NIH grants and stuff right, like that. Right. Grants for this. This is my wife and I's and other docs that we've worked with um, yeah. to, you know, of our own, 
money, which is a lot of money and, and regardless and a lot of time. And what we found is that when we improved their cervical lordosis, they had less of that skull extension. So they're irritating the upper cervical ligaments less. And when you look at the upper cervical spine, as you know, you have two um, uh, concave joints. So it's, it's, you're trying to balance a balance, uh, uh, a bowling ball. So if it's translated forward with extension, you're kind of pushing it forward. It's already less stable to begin with. And, you know, uh, the biomechanics of the spine by White and Punjabi, um, one, a, one sign, radiographic font, sign of cervical instability or occult instability is a loss of the curve. So we know that a loss of the curve is already an unstable spine. But now is it leading to less stability in other areas? And what we found and what other studies show is that, yeah, the, the upper cervical spine is under so much more load and stress that you're just irritating these ligaments. And this is something I've always said this intended, like, hey, the procedure you're doing is fantastic, but what if the area is, is completely subluxated? Like, what if we combine and then, you know, what if we start to work together and, and we didn't do that in this paper. This was just strictly chiropractic um, yeah. to get that better curve. And what we found was that there was uh, a true progression as, as their cervical curve improved, we got much less um, instability and then, you know, and then the patients, you know, felt better. So, but even, even the ones that got better, if they still didn't have a great curve or they still didn't have, um, or they still had upper cervical instability, just because they felt better, they're not done with care. They still have true subluxations that the research shows will get worse. But what we found is that as we started to improve the sagittal alignment, the global subluxations, the intersegmental, the, the segmental instability of C1 and that C1 subluxation dramatically reduced. And this is the first paper ever that that I'm aware of, and we looked that this type of true subluxation or instability can be managed without surgery, and that's a and, huge and thing. It, it it is huge, and this was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine, so this wasn't like no, it's know, a some, some low level. It's a big, it's a high level journal, and this you know, especially I I appreciated that you put non surgical management, you know, as yeah. as sort of the title. Like that's a very thoughtful way to to title the the article because. You know, we attended a Chiari and Syringomyelia conference a while back this summer, and they're very keen on non-surgical management of these yeah. cases, which is something that chiropractors don't understand about surgeons. Is a lot of them they're they're not just wanting to cut on everybody; they want good outcomes, and they know that there there are risk factors with having surgical interventions. Well, uh, so if, if you have yeah. a non-surgical option, that that's going to get attention. It's going to get attention, but now we can also explain and educate that there is a, there is a treatment. Let's, you know, there is yeah, something yeah. that could be done for these patients outside. Like it's not drugs. Drugs isn't going to fit. Now they'll, they'll get drugged for their symptoms and that's not going to be good long-term. Um, but that we can, we can manage this and we can fix this. And, you know, the good surgeons, you know, that we work with, they're, they tell us straight away. They're like, look, the person doesn't have a neurological compression. Don't send them. Like we have nothing to offer because if we do yeah. surgery on these patients with like axial back pain or like, they're just going to get worse, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're, and, and the ones that we know, like, man, they're so busy anyway, they're doing like brain yeah. bleeds and like, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like, Oh, you have some back pain. Like go to the grocery doctor cats. Like yeah. Yeah. they have nothing to offer them. So what can we do for this? And the only thing to offer, you know, there's, there's Centeno's procedure, which is, you know, expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a great option. Hell, I would do that way before surgery because once you do surgery on this there's no going back and and there's right. i have a paper on my site where it's from neurosurgical and they talk about this and they use the dmx and dude the way that they fix it is they just fuse them well and, and dr katz right before we recorded text me a photo of a lateral cervical x-ray yeah. full of hardware the neck is about as you know forward as it buckle. can go and it's just like oh my god you know this yeah. is the type of people that are still searching for help Right. Well, so what do this do? lady, the, the one that I sent you today, she just came in today. Dude, she had that surgery 20 years ago. Yikes. Like she, and she showed me, she came in with her, like she actually had film. She kept them. I was like, well, she had a massive ADI and oh, wow. she did this surgery. And you're like, yeah, she, that, I mean, that was, she needed that. But you, time, like, yeah. like, okay, let's say she felt better. Like with some of these chiropractors, they feel better. 
look at how she is now. She's not better because nobody analyzed the subluxations after that. Hmm. Yeah, and, and speaking of asymptomatic patients, like Dr. or Deed Harrison just published a paper this month and go back a couple episodes and listen to the rapid research review I did on it. It was about um, basically the, the loss of cervical lordosis affecting cardiopulmonary testing and athletic performance testing in young, healthy collegiate athletes, asymptomatic, normal BMI, no history of trauma. So, so they're finding that, you know, these kids that are basically the health, the, the, the picture of health, right? College athletes with no symptoms. When they just did postural improvements, I don't even think this was a radiographic assessment. I think they right. used a posture pro app and just made postural improvements on forward head carriage. They saw that, you know, cardiopulmonary testing improved and they saw that, you know, balance and performance testing improved, which is basically global proprioception. Absolutely. I mean, and then the comment I made in the thing is like, these, these are things you need to live a life. Right. You need a healthy cardiovascular system. You need a body awareness and performance. And, and if you don't have symptoms like they would have, you know, they will eventually without yep. that uh, intervention. So it, it's really interesting when we draw these correlations, you know, and this is, again, it's the first step in the process of building that idea out. When you take this healthy population and you say, there's dysfunction, there's measurable dysfunction, and we can see it in a lot of different physiological manifestations, regard, and these people feel good, that's compelling, you know, and that means something for not just athletic performance, but also for life performance. Yep. And for long-term health trajectory. Absolutely. And again, like that person might not become symptomatic, but if they lose five to eight percent of their athletic ability, they might not get that scholarship or play pro. They don't they feel fine. They're just yeah. a little bit slower than the next person that might be posturally better or sagely aligned better. Right. So yeah. and that's the thing that CVP is doing. They did a study also, they looked at spinal cord latency and they found that when the spine had a curve in it the spinal cord, it traveled faster. Like that's mm. huge, right? Like we don't know what that means, but like that's subluxation. And why, like, why ignore that? We, everyone knows that an abnormal curvature is bad. I mean, a few people will argue like, well, maybe innate wants it that way or something like that. But the evidence just isn't there to support that. And that's, that's where I am with all this is like, that's great. We all see people get better, right? Crystal healers get people better. Massage therapists doing nothing gets people better Tylenol. So how do you, how do we separate ourselves from that? Because you can see here and be like, well, I get people better. Well, a crystal healer could be like, well, so do I. Well, right now you have, if you're just going off, how does someone feel? Um, right now your chiropractic is just as effective as crystal healing. Now I can say, Hey, my, my treatment has minimized upper cervical instability and restored a curve, minimizing, um, increased pressure on the nervous system, vascular, all this other stuff. And we published a paper that abnormal curve decreases blood flow to the brain. I can show that chiropractic can do that. So it's not just like, oh, I'm glad you felt better, but we're increasing fill in the blank. And yeah. that's what the studies show. And that's what I show my patients all the time and, and talk to you know any clients of my site of like, educate your patients with real science. You don't have to say, because I get you better. The evidence is already there to support it. Show them that. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just like we we over rely on this bone on nerve model of, you know, what the impact is and all these stupid charts with nerves going to the stomach and saying like your T12 is out and that's why you're, you know, you're having IBS. It's like maybe, but probably not. You know, and it's like, like you said, based on what? That's 1911 chiropractic that's just carried on, you know, over and over. And so, I guess, yeah, and if... if BJ and DB and all those guys and girls were alive today. They would, I, I would like to think they would, with the, at least especially with the technology we have, they would definitely be looking at how does things move, what are we doing, why is this yeah. helping? Like, yeah. <clears throat> we need to continue. We know it works, but do we really know why? And, and it's not even just a matter of that it works, but you know the the frustration I've had in practice with the basic technique parameters is like. Can I make it work the way I want it to work for everybody on purpose every time? You know, can I, can I more, that, that's what got Dr. Blair messing around with the HIO training he had was like, Hey, people aren't getting as good a results as I heard that they would. I've got to figure out how to make that better. Right. What else? That, that, that's what he did. And the weird thing we do with techniques is we like, we take these people who were forward thinking and who, who kind of challenged the status quo. And then we, 
huddle around them and don't do the thing that they did, which is continue on. Right. Um, so let's talk about professionally integrated because you've mentioned it a few times and, mm-hmm. and I want folks to know where they can continue to explore this further. So, so talk about how and why you developed that and what exactly professionally integrated has to offer. Sure. So I present a lot and, uh, I would present on research on, you know, all these spinal problems, how it affects our patients. What does it mean? Um, teach how to document it. So your notes reflect it, how to tell patients about it. I'm not going to say I'm a, um, what a practice management person, because I want to be way different than them is just real true science evidence-based for chiropractic. And I finally just started to put together this website. And right now it has hundreds and hundreds of videos, articles, webinars with neurosurgeons, with chiropractors, with people like Centeno. And it's all for your patients. It's to make uh, patient education handouts. It's to quickly document your notes so that your notes um, really reflect what's wrong with this person. Why? Okay. So you diagnosed C1 subluxation. You can go in and just type upper cervical and a bunch of papers about upper cervical come up and I have videos on it where you can listen to it in your headphones. Then you can copy and paste and put some of it like the macros in your notes or print it out. Um, and then I slanted it a little bit to, I don't want to say slanted, but personal injury is the one time like someone's going to question you, right? So I, tre- I treat everyone and document everyone the same. I don't care if it's a time of service patient, pro bono patient or a personal injury patient. I want my notes to reflect why why they're suffering and what I can do to help and what does the research show about it. So my site is, you know, super inexpensive. It's really less than one patient visit a month for, for most chiropractors. Um, and then you just have full access to it. You know, webinars, there's a platinum section. A gold section is you get access to pretty much the whole site. Um, platinum is... Um, you get access to me and the site. So I'll help you one-on-one. Um, I only open it up to a couple of docs because my wife and I have a full practice and we use this site on every single patient, right? It's, it's how we build our practice. It's how we built our practice to where it is today. And what we do is just educating the community about these problems. Hey, we diagnosed you with a loss of curve. Here's evidence that, you know, and we just educated everyone every day on something different. Love it. And, and I do think if you go, uh, I looked at it recently, I do think there's like a two week trial or something. You can yeah, it's a two week trial. You get some. Mm-hmm. Take, it, yep. take it for a test drive. Just see just see what you think of it. And um, uh, I, I doubt that it'll disappoint you. So I'd encourage docs, yeah. if, this, if this conversation gets you excited, if these concepts have got your juices flowing and you're like, I, I want to get into this more, then that's the place to go. You know, and yeah. then they've invested a lot in making that available. I can pretty much confidently say that I know my site has more information than anywhere else. I don't care what the price point is. And I guarantee you my site is also less. I'm not trying to make it rich off this. I just want, doc, I want docs to have it. And, um, and I, you know, and as it relates to personal injury or anything like that, um, you know, I started saying, just ask them, ask the people that are going to take your money to try to educate you, ask them how many times they defend a chiropractic in court. Ask them how many times they've been depoted. Ask them how much research they've done to push the chiropractic profession forward. And I guarantee you, they can't even come close to our site on top of the content we have. Like, we're trying to give back. Like, here's a site that you could support and that we're supporting the profession, like truly supporting the profession. Awesome. So, awesome. And, and I'm going to put the links to the papers we've been talking about in the show notes here. So they're the please. full text. Um, the full text links are there. Just click them, download them, read them for yourself. I know, you know, when we talk about this stuff, it's it's you're getting snippets and takeaways, but read, read the papers. I, I think there's benefit in you getting through all of it, you know, together. And, and honestly, like lately, one of my favorite part of papers is those references. I mean, yeah. like if you get interested in a topic, you go look into those references. There's like a hundred of them. Yeah. There's plenty of reading to do, you know, and you can go down that rabbit hole until your ears fall off. So, well, and, that, and that's the fascinating thing is there's so much information out there that just supports what we do that we don't have to say anymore because I say so. Yeah. Or because I see people get better or because I know this isn't good for you. Show them what the evidence is. And, you know, and I have all that on my site, like hundreds of it, like show yeah. them why this is bad. Show them what, what the evidence says about it. And then explain yeah. to them what happens when you remove that and you improve that. Yeah. Awesome. Powerful concept. Yep. I really appreciate the generosity of your time considering all the things we're talking about and how many things you guys are 
you know, doing simultaneously. So uh, thanks a lot. I appreciate you. your willingness to make this happen. And uh, I'll, I'll take you up on that beer eventually and get up to Boulder and, and just continue to jam on this. So yeah, let me uh, know, man. thanks a lot. And, and it, any last words of encouragement or advice, particularly for the students or young docs listening? Yeah, I think question everything, you know, question everything. Um, that's what I, that's what I did. And that's what I still do. Um, if someone says, because I say so, that's not good enough. I don't care if they're your mentor. Um, dive into it. This is going to be your career, right? This isn't your job. Your career is healthcare. You're there to care for others' health. How can you care for their health if you don't totally understand the aspects you're working on? Um, get out there, learn, ask questions, rattle the cages, and just try to make yourself better. All you want is better outcomes. Yeah, don't get stuck on just one technique. Like, look at them all. Sometimes you're going to you're going to take bits from here and bits from here and put them together of what you think works best. As long as you're following what the evidence shows and you're getting people better and you're really trying to remove and reduce these supplication patterns. Hey, we just wanted to say thank you for listening to Atlas of Chiropractic. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Go ahead and subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so that you're the first to know about new episodes. Leave a rating and review to let others know how you really feel about the conversations we're having. And last thing, check the show notes for relevant links, contact info, and resources that we mentioned during this episode. 